This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 633, and the quote of the day is, Life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you wish, but you can only spend it once. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 633, and today we celebrate the life and legacy of Colin Bailey. And I was introduced to Colin through Don Lombardi, who owns DW Drums, owns Drum Channel, and Don was very close friends with Colin. He introduced me to him quite some time ago. So this this episode was originally recorded. It was number 66 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. So it's been a long time, needless to say. And now Colin is someone who may or may not have flown under the radar a bit. And, but that's not for good reason because he has just a long list of accomplishments in his career and started playing drums young. He started playing when he was four years old. By the time he was seven, he was already in a band called Nibs. And then he toured with Winifred Altwell from 1952 to 56 and performed at the London Palladium for the Queen in 1952. And Winifred is someone who was really popular in boogie woogie and ragtime music and sold 20 million records. So he then moved to Sydney, played with Bryce Road and the Australian Jazz Quartet. And he backed up musicians like Dizzy Gillespie and Sarah Vaughan. And then in 1962, they recorded a record called Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus, which included the hit Cast Your Fate to the Wind. Then in 1963, he moved to LA to play with Victor Feldman Trio, and he recorded the soundtrack for A Charlie Brown Christmas, which to me is the greatest Christmas record of all time. It's a great jazz record, but it's a it's an, an amazing, amazing Christmas record if you haven't checked that out. And then from there, he went to work with Claire Fisher and Joe Pass and Miles Davis and Benny Goodman and Frank Sinatra, Chet Baker, Ray Brown. And then in 1970, he becomes an American citizen and then spends six years as Ed Shaughnessy's backup drummer for the Tonight Show Band. So he has done so many things where if you look at his career, it's something that people would love to have half of these half of these credits or half of this much success in his in your career and and the way that he did it uh is is just it exemplifies how we should live our life we should live it full and we should have a lot of experiences and he did that to the fullest he played well into his 80s doing clinics and master classes around the country still gigging and all of that so definitely someone to emulate and to learn from and i'm not going to waste any more time i'm going to get into it with colin and let him talk about the stories of his magnificent life here we go mr colin bailey
Colin, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really do appreciate you taking some time to chat with me today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. It is. It is great to have you. I've uh, I've been a fan of your work for quite some time now, and and as everybody consider you the the expert on bass drum technique, and we're going to get all into that. Uh, but first, I always like to get the backstory of my guests. Of of I know that you were born in England, um, and you started playing at the age of four. But can you just give us some insight as to how you started playing and how you got into it, and how you've amassed this this amazing career over the years? Jesus. Well, my parents t told me I started at four. You know, I was uh, slapping the arms of the chairs. You know, they said, this kid's going to be a drummer. So right. I got a little tiny drum set when I was six. I remember that. I had my first real drum set when I was seven. My dad brought it home in a sack <laughs> <laughs> on his bicycle. How about that? Really? This is 1941 now, you know. Right, right, right. Um, I just... Had uh, lessons briefly with a guy, played at the Playhouse, uh, which was the my, my local town's uh, you know, vaudeville theater. Right. And he taught me how to roll, but he had a terrible, I've got all this down on some, somewhere. He had a terrible left-hand grip. One of the, you know, so uh, then I was taking lessons with a guy named Peter Coleman, who became a named drummer in England. When I was 10, he taught me how to read. My first piece of drum music was uh, American Patrol. Remember that? Glenn Miller? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm writing so, it down, though. I'm so young, man. God. <laughs> American Patrol. Patrol. It's, it's a great um, solo in there by Mo Morris Pertel. It's like... It fits in good into the tune. Anyway, you were saying you you were playing with uh, local dance bands. Local dance bands, yeah, you know, uh, they were you know like five brass, five saxes, those kind of bands, mm -hmm. and uh, you know I just got better at it. And... So now you're talking. This was in you said the '40s and '50s when yes. you were, when you were coming up playing. So I I take it that you learned all of the traditional things that that you should learn the rudiments, how to read. Oh yeah, learning to play the snare drum and. A lot of people now don't learn all of that stuff. What's your take on that? I think people should uh, learn the rudiments, especially the paradiddles, mm -hmm. slams. I mean, those are very important to me. Those are the ones I would, you know, I not that I get many students these days, but um, uh, those are the ones I would recommend. Paradiddles, especially single paradiddle. I mean, I use it all the time in soloing. Max Roach was the first one to do that, 1951, I believe. And, First uh, one to play a paradiddle and a solo. And so yeah, I use it all the time in solo. I use it in various ways, and also flams. I mean, I use Mel Lewis influenced me with flams. Mm -hmm. It's all the time in my solo, all the time. Um, so I, I would do that. Learning to read nowadays. <laughs> when do you learn? When do you read anymore? I haven't read a piece of drum music in years. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah you, if there's music now, you get a lead sheet. You don't get a real drum part. Sure. Those days are over. I don't think the people that write arrangements don't know how to write a drum part. <laughs> 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 anyway, yeah, so, you know, I was playing with a, when I was 16, I went on the road with a, a big band for a few months, five months, months, five months. One night stands uh, was tough, you know. <laughs> Even though I was only 16, it was really rough. Yeah. 
And uh, so I quit that after a while. And I think I did five months without that. And uh, I had to get back home and uh, get my health together. And I got my first name job in England with a commercial pianist named Winifred Atwell. She was a, a black lady from the West Indies, and she was just becoming a big star. There was a real kind of corny music, you know, <laughs> cross hands boogie. And, but hey, it was a name job, man. It was right. great for me, you know, and uh, got me into the uh, loading photos. Better, you know, better touring uh, conditions? Beg your pardon? I said in better, better touring conditions. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Christ, yeah. I mean, much better. And then, you know, uh, I played in the theater in, in, in London with her for 15 months, the Prince of Wales Theater. And um, early 55, we went to Australia. My wife of then, since past, um, went to Australia on a tour and uh, loved Australia, got back to England, hated the weather. <laughs> so we emigrated. I, I was playing with bands in England, you know, uh, I left this winning for that while, which was like a class gig in the Palladium. And I went to play this gig in Sheffield in Yorkshire with this dance band. It was much more fun than winning for that while. But boy, what a, what a place. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, then I went to play in Bristol for a year. And I went on the road with a Simon Phillips' uncle. Oh, really? I just yeah. interviewed Simon a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Sid Phillips, his name was a clarinet player. Uh, Unlike Simon, who's a beautiful guy, Sid, <laughs> Sid was a pain in the ass. You know, there were, there were lots of funny things that happened on, on that band. Yeah. Which I, I won't want to get into because <laughs> the, the tents. You think I should say something about the tents? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about it. Oh. Well, Sid, we call him Sid the Year, you know, not very popular these days. <laughs> right. Because uh, uh, he was, man, he was cheap anyway uh we had a 32-seater bus for six guys and a girl singer and then sid decided it was costing too much money so he got two vans one for the guys and one for the instruments and a couple of other guys so uh we didn't want to afford to spend hotels you have motels in those days right this is not 58 and um so the trumpet player said i, I know a guy's got some tents so we're like trying to pitch tents and we were wearing tuxedos on the gig. <laughs> we're going to one of these places like where they have RVs now, you know. Right. Call them caravans at the time. And people used to wait to see who were coming out of the tents. We come out in the tuxedo and they're like, <laughs> <laughs> thought we were insane. It happened a couple of times and it was pretty funny. You know? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, Simon, Simon knew all the guys in the band and he knew the girl singer. I talked to him quite a few years ago now. He was like uh, just a kid, you know. And he, <laughs> was he playing then too? Simon, I have no idea. I, I doubt it. Well, how do I know? He was just a little kid. Right. Probably he was. Uh, well, he didn't waste any time. <laughs> no, no, he definitely didn't. So, I mean, have you known Simon for years then? No, I, yeah. I, met, him, I met him somewhere. We talked about uh, Sidney and the band. I mean, you know, guys, uh, I haven't seen him since. But hmm. I see him on, you know, people post that on Facebook. He's a fantastic drummer. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, he's playing a lot, man. I think he's more musical than a lot of the guys that play that kind of music. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's... Then in 1958, I emigrated to Australia 
my late wife and I, and uh, to Sydney. And Winifred Outwell was coming over there at the, at the time that I was landing there. And uh, so they offered me the gig, which lasted about nine months. Uh, so then I, I got into the studio scene there, and that's where I met Bryce Rohde, who was the uh, a piano player with a group called the Australian Quintet, which was in the States uh, for about, since what, about five years. They grew from a quartet into a quintet. Uh, they had a guy playing oboe. You know, he was like a, was kind of like a, a freaky type thing. You know, people dug it though. Anyway, they went to Australia, did a concert tour, split up. So the piano player formed a quartet with me in it and the same bass player and a really good guitar player who chickened out, didn't come up. So we opened up for the Kingston Trio. Remember the Kingston Trio? You're too young. Remember the Kingston Trio? They were like a, a folksy pop group, big, really big time group. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is 1960. Christ, what, what year was this? Hmm. What year am I talking about? 1960. 1960. Late, late 1960. And um, they liked our playing, and we, we got on great personally. So they invited us over here to do a six weekend tour with them, opening for them. Oh, so the states. We, yeah. Oh, so okay. we did this around. You know, my wife and I got a green card. What did you do in those days? And we came over. I mean, I was expecting to go back. So I was, we were spending all our money going to hear the jazz bands. We were, first week I was in San Francisco, miles of the jazz, the Blackhawk. Oh, wow. Kind of groups. And I saw Jimmy Cobb in person. Jesus, you know. <laughs> And then uh, Vince Guaraldi, I don't know if you know Vince Guaraldi, mm-hmm. um, he heard me play. We did a concert uh, in San Francisco, and um, he was there with a, my other friend, Molly Budwick, the bass player who was playing with Vince. And he invited me to the jazz workshop to uh, sit in with him on Monday nights. He was doing the Monday night to, you know, jam session thing. So I went there, and he liked my playing, so he called me and Offered me the gig with him. Jeez, I couldn't believe it. Playing with those guys, you know, because they were like really world class players. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, we did jazz impressions of Black Orpheus in 1962, which was a big hit. Cast your fate to the wind. You're probably too young to know all about this. It's a little bit before my time. Yeah, cast your fate <laughs> to the wind was a huge hit. Vince's income went like from seven thousand a year to like three hundred and fifty thousand. Jeez, <laughs> he got audited, you know. Right. Uh, and then we, we did, uh, I moved to L.A. in January of 63. Now, before you moved to L.A., um, yeah. when you were, I read somewhere that you met Joe Morello when you were in Australia, right? I did, yeah. Oh, man. Well, Joe was the biggest influence. Uh, Jimmy Cobb, too, but Joe, you know, technically. And we became great friends. And we just got on so well together, you know. Now, how much older is Joe than you? Joe, four or five years. Okay. He was 84, I think probably five years older than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was, bo- he was born in uh, 29. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I was in the opening act, opening group for that, for, for Dave Brubeck. And 
uh, I was asked, like, would you help Joe with the drums? Jesus. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Just just to touch his hand. Right. I heard, I heard this record. It's, it's being put out again. It was called, uh, oh, man, Jazz Impressions of the USA. Jazz Impressions of the USA, it was called. And Joe did a solo on there called Sounds of the Loop. It, it's it's been out there, you know. People have been posting this stuff like on on Facebook and then, and he did this solo, man, with the left hand stuff. Like uh, I never heard anything like it. I, I just couldn't believe it, you know. Right. You know, I thought it was some kind of trick drumming, but you know, <laughs> recording stuff in those days, you know, unbelievable stuff. And then when I got to meet him and see it firsthand, so like <laughs> I had the practice pad outside his door every morning, you know. Mm. <laughs> He taught me how to do that technique. You know, I'm still trying to get it right. Aren't we all? So what did what did what did he teach you? I'm I'm really interested to hear finger control, finger control technique. Mm -hmm. That was it. I mean, that's been an important part of my life. I Man, changed my playing. You know, uh, really? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it enables you to play quieter. You know, sure. A lot of drummers are too loud. I've heard guys in the jazz trio man bash in. You got to come down in the volume. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Technique allows allows you to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did, I did that when I came over here because I saw Joe fairly often. You know, he's like, you know, watch me to uh, make sure I was doing it correctly. Uh, but we we had lots of fun together. We we liked to be silly, you know. He liked. Brubeck went to India, you know, and they lived the Indian accent like this morning, Korean Harris, you know, that kind of accent. So yeah, I do it quite well, not them, but he used to like me get on the phone for, for room service. Could you send me up two bottles of good beer, please, to room 613? <laughs> he would laugh, man, he would just laugh. <laughs> so we used to do that kind of stuff, you know, silly. Uh, but what, what a great friend, man. I just loved him. When he died, you know, we didn't see each other that much. Mm -hmm. Lived in New York and I live out here, you know. Uh, I actually made plans to study with him, and uh, and he ended up passing away before I got to study yeah, with him. That's that's a shame. Yeah. Apparently, his his last few years was like telling stories, right? Instead of getting on with you know teaching something. Sure. Sometimes that's part of it, though. It's just you know the hang and and talking drums. It is. Well, I always tell stories. Because I have a lot of stories to tell, believe me. I've been around a long time. When you have, you have lots of stories. Right, right. Uh, I know about a lot of people, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, uh, came over here. Um, Vince went to Los, An went Los Angeles to play with Victor Feldman. I don't know if you know who Victor Feldman is. Mm -mm. God, amazing. <laughs> Get, check out Victor Feldman. He's the most he's an English guy. I've never met him in England. How do you spell his last name? Feldman. Oh, F Feldman. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Victor. Incredible musician. Uh, he, he played with Cannibal Adderley for a year in 1960 and 61. Hmm. And in 1963, when Miles had that new group, uh, it, uh, what was it called? He's a seven steps to heaven. Mm -hmm. You don't know that album either, probably. Yeah. Oh, no, I know that right. Anyway, 1963, that was when he had a new... Huh? You didn't know it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, well, Herbie Hancock, 
became the piano player, but Miles wanted Victor. He loved Victor's playing, and Victor's the hottest piano player I ever heard, except maybe Oscar Peterson. So Miles was coming into the club every night for two weeks courting Victor for this gig, but Victor turned it down. He didn't want to go on the road anymore. Yeah. So uh, I'm sitting at home. Tony, that's when Tony Williams came in. He was like barely 16. He was like the new sensation on that on that album, you know. Right. So I'm sitting at home and uh, on a Tuesday night, maybe Monday or Tuesday night, the phone rang, and it was this agent named Ben Shapiro, and he said, are you working tonight? I said, no. He says, you want to play with Miles Davis? Well, you know, jeez, uh, uh, I've only been in the States like barely three years, and I said, do I be too nervous? I, I, I thought I would be too nervous to play with, with those guys, you know. Right. So my wife said, you idiot. And you know, I hung up. And I said, you idiot, you'll regret that for the rest of your life. Just get back on the phone and call <laughs> so I got back on the phone and uh, trying to get through, and there was an emergency call for Colin Bailey. It was from Miles. <laughs> and, my, and that voice said, What's this nervous bullshit, motherfucker? Get your ass down here. <laughs> so I told the guy to be too nervous. It was What's this nervous bullshit? <laughs> so, you know, I, I went, and it was uh, quite an experience. He was real nice. All the guys were very nice to me. Had you met Miles before that? No, no, no. no. I, well, like, yeah, I, I met him before he, because he was coming into the club every night. Right. He kind of got me, like, just as a, the two drummers he might have called were both in jail for drugs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he thought, oh, I'll get that kid who's playing with Victor. So that's right. Going. But quite an experience playing with those guys. I'm but sure. Miles was really nice. He didn't play any of their new tunes like that. me like, you know, uh, being nervous about it. I, he played If I Were a Bell, all the regular tunes from the mid-50s. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. You know, I, I did two nights, and then uh, they uh, I did the first set of the third night, and then they brought Tony on. Jesus. Whew, man, he exploded. I never heard anybody play, you know, like jazz like him. And he was young then, right? You said he was, what, he was like 16? Barely 16. Just turned wow. 16. Yeah, what happened was they had these people waiting for them to do their sound check of the club. They said, this boy is too young to be a you know, den of iniquity style thing, you know, so they wouldn't let him play. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get there, man. There's a line of people like two miles around the corner to hear this new band. So I was pretty nervous. And uh, I got onto the stage with my cymbal bag and I hear some guy say, hey, man, that ain't Tony Williams. <laughs> <laughs> feel really good, you know. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I got to know Tony, you know, through that, and we hung out a bit. You know, if we were on the roads at the same time, and, right? Uh, so anyway, that then I played with Victor, and I started doing studio work. And I went on the road with George Shearing, which you probably never heard of. George Shearing was a very big, uh, big time jazz group from the late forties, ooh, into the late sixties, early early seventies. Sir George. Sir, he became Sir George. Sir and uh, he had a quintet. It was a guitar, vibes, piano, bass, and drums. Had a beautiful sound. If you were to sound, you, you would you know it. Yeah, it's uh, Definitive sound. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I spent two odd different years with him, 64 and then 66 or 67. And both times I left him to do a TV show in L.A. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I got into the studio. It was, you know, I played with Victor and uh, I played with all kinds of really great jazz players in L.A., you know, Hampton Halls and uh, various people you probably haven't heard of. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's great. You know, I, I met Joe Pass. Do you know Joe Pass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did 14 albums with Joe Pass. Really? Through, through the years. Did the first one in 1963. I was on his first album, 1963. I never knew that. It was called Catch Me. It was originally called Forward Pass. <laughs> but the, but the, uh, the owner of the studio and the engineer and the producer said he wanted to be called Catch Me. Well, Joe hated him. He said, Catch Me. What the fuck are you Catch Me? Like, you know, <laughs> so fast, Catch Me. So he didn't like it. But anyway, it was with Claire Fisher, a guy. Uh, then I did Joe's second album in 64 called For Django became a really famous album and we had a quartet John Pisano guitar Jim Hewart bass and me and we had that group going through the years and uh, Joe went with Norman Granz Oscar Peterson in 1970 so I didn't see Joe for quite a few years but he was becoming very famous doing those jazz at the Philharmonic tours mm-hmm. Norman Graz was a huge, huge promoter in jazz, like really big time. And uh, then in 1989, we, we got the quartet together again. We did uh, quite a few more albums. And we went to Japan a couple of times for six weeks. A wonderful, wonderful time playing. And, you know, I played with various singers, geez, you know, through the years. Right. Yeah, if you look up my, my 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 website, you'll see most of what I'm, I'm on. I'm on it now. I actually uh, I wanted to ask you. Um, we had mentioned before we started about your bass com- bass drum control books and yeah. DVDs, and I, I would say that that is one of your biggest passions is the is the bass drum pedal and the bass drum control. And so, how did you start to develop that passion for well, that? How did it, it, I always wanted to do more on the bass drum than I could do. Right. So one day when I was practicing, I discovered this slight, very slight lift of the heel and they were me to get more beats in. I was never one of those guys who wanted to go bubba, 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 with a bass drum. Right. I just like to put it in soloing. Two, one, two, three, four beats. Once in a while, a few more, but mm-hmm. basically, you know, one through four. It adds so much to the, to the soloing, I can't tell you. I mean, it just expanded my repertoire as a soloist and uh, you know I, I gradually got better <laughs> I went on the gig a couple of times trying to use it and I you know it just went Ugh, you know <laughs> embarrassing but I got it together and uh, the guys were coming in to, to the club to hear me play I used to come to Victor because he was such a giant player and um, they were going to the pro drum shop Bob Yeager saying, man, have you heard this new cat, man? Please, the bass drum, Jesus Christ. So Jaeger asked me to write a, a book, Exercises. That was bass drum control. Hmm. So that was 1964, so it's 50 years old this year. Got a nice new picture on the cover. So yeah, I just, you were showing me that earlier. That's So That's the, is that what that is, the 50th release of it, or the 50th anniversary of the release? Yeah. What, what was that? With Joe Pass. 50 years, 50 years old. <laughs> Uh, but the book has been a huge success, man, forever, you know. I, I have it. I've gone through it. I've, 
it's it's definitely helped me and i also i watched your videos on drum channel and i downloaded some uh some of the pdfs and i've been studying some of the technique that you've been doing for a while now so yeah well it's it's not for real loud playing like if you're in a, a rock group or you know or a fusion band you know it's it's not really the kind of technique for that but if you want to play you know beats and play a little quieter right uh, but yeah, that's the DVD. I, I played really well on that. Uh, I practiced my ass off for about six months to do that though. <laughs> that's gotta be a nerve wracking experience to know that, you know, it's like cutting a record, but it, but the, but with a video camera and it's on you the whole entire time. Yeah, it didn't bother me because I'd done so much television, man. I was on TV. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I used to sub for Shawnsy on the Johnny Carson show. You're probably too young for that. How old no, are you? No, no, I'm 33. Oh, well, I'm... But I, I mean, I remember the Johnny Carson show. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. I was just Fred Shawnsy on there a lot for mm-hmm. about six years. So I moved out of L.A. And uh, what was I saying? Oh, damn, I've been on TV. I wasn't nervous at all. You know, I have my stuff together. So cameras never did bother me, you know. Ever since the Miles Davis thing, you haven't been nervous about anything, yeah, right? uh, <laughs> yeah, I was nervous. I, I don't remember driving there or anything, you know. All right. I saw all these people. I thought, oh, shit, you know. And then when that guy said, that, that ain't Tony Williams. <laughs> oh. So back to back to the DVD, you were saying that uh, yeah, you were well, nervous. And- uh, Don Lombardi's idea, you know. Mm-hmm. He'd, uh, he'd been thinking about it for quite a while. And at the same time, I did another really good video. Like my second book called uh, Drum Souls, The Art of Phrasing. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I am. Yeah, it's a great book, man. Yeah, yeah it is. Learn how to do four, you know, four, eight, whatever, in jazz drumming, solo thing. You're the great jazz drummers, man. They always, they play in two-bar phrases, you know. That, that's what I discovered when a student came and said he had a drum solo in his chart in his, his, his college band. What, is, what, what should he do, <laughs> you know? Right. So I started doing stuff, and I realized that that, that was two-bar phrases. So I wrote this book. And I did, a, I did a video on it, you know, went through the whole damn book. And I've been trying to get Don to put it out ever since, you know. it's. Uh, I've done some things on them that are on YouTube, lessons. I don't know if you've seen those. I haven't. Let me, uh, um, while, yeah, we're, keep, while you're talking, I'm going to be looking this stuff up. So. Yeah, there's a friend of mine named John Exopolis. He's got a whole bunch of stuff out there on YouTube. He's a neighbor, a very good drummer, a real good friend of mine. So we did it at his house. He's got all the equipment to do it there. Hmm. And uh, it's, you know, it's like stuff from that book. Right. So, so let's let's talk about it a little bit, because I think that for some reason, soloing always has like this. It always has this. Uh, everybody's af- afraid of it and they don't don't they never know what to do during the solo. And yeah, well, that's why I wrote this book. Right. <laughs> if people are buy the book and, you know, go through it. Um, and there will be links on the website for all of the stuff that we're talking about, so the so the oh, viewers yeah. can can yeah. see all that stuff. So yeah, yeah. Uh, they can't see the uh, the uh, art of phrasing video because it hasn't been put out there yet. But Don keeps threatening to put it on the, the, the digital downloads. On the <laughs> I'm I'm a good soloist, man. I've always been a good soloist because just you know you have to have you have to have some technique, really. Right. And. Uh, but know what to do, know what to play. I never know what I'm going to play with. 
solos come up, but I've got enough vocabulary, as it's called, to, you know, just come up with something. Right. Yeah. You know, so, I a lot of times I see younger players and they're soloing and and it seems like they don't know what to play next. It's, it's kind of like a, you know, a thinking on their feet kind of thing. But you can hear that disconnect between their ability and what they're thinking mentally. And there's always like it to me, I, I, I just feel like I hear a lot of disconnect. But then when I listen to somebody like you solo or Tony Williams or, you know, any anybody else that is at your level, there's no disconnect. There's no. Uh, there's yeah, no- he gets to know what to do, you know experience but plays a part too you know mm-hmm. <laughs> but with tony williams he didn't have any experience really and he was like a, he came through with alan dawson was his teacher he was a great yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan dawson love his playing um is that who taught tony williams that's yeah this his final teacher like he's the one who like got him to play like he did uh, hmm. i never knew that yeah uh great drummer alan dawson oh yeah absolutely him. so you know that's Soloing, yeah, that's. Um, I did another bass drum book, which doesn't sell very well because people just want to get the first one. Uh, it's called uh, Bass Drum Control Solos. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a stuff around stuff around the drum set using you know the bass drum and the, uh, it's it's written out on the various lines, you know. Right. I actually, I actually did a lot of the solos uh, recorded. On the uh, Art of Phrasing book, I didn't um, record the, um, the solos I'd written down, except I did five tunes with a, with a trio, Bruce Foreman's great guitar player and uh, bass player. And um, I did solos on, on those tracks. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, what do you call the word? Jesus Christ, I can't think of the word. They're taking, taking stuff down. Oh, oh, oh. I took it from from the tape onto you know onto the uh, oh. what overdubbing it? Oh no, not overdubbing. I can't think of a word. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Transcribed. If it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't know it. <laughs> I transcribed the solos to go on uh, in the book. For, 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 I got I you. Went upstairs in my drum booth and I uh, I taped a whole bunch of stuff. It was you know still tape and. Uh, Came back down to the computer and I took the stuff that I, I liked and put that on there, you know. <laughs> right. That's how I did that. So um So outside of outside of the book, we obviously want people to go and and buy the books. Um, you know, especially the bass drum control book and the soloing book. What it what advice do you have for for people that are stuck with their soloing and they, they can't figure out you know new and creative ways to, to solo and, and don't feel like they know what they know what to do during a solo. Well, you know what? It, it, all you got to do is listen to, to really listen to Phil Joe Jones was the best fours player that I ever heard. Big influence on me. Mm-hmm. You know, Roy Haynes, Jimmy Cobb, those guys, they know how to play, you know, I mean, Philly Joe influenced so many drummers with his, with his fours and eights and stuff. Don't give up your day job. Right. <laughs> That's, that's, a, that's sick, but I <laughs> I don't ever tell people that. <laughs> Except for me, I, I'm going to become a box boy at Safeway. There you go. <laughs> You're going to stop playing? No. <laughs> if I couldn't play the drums, I'd rather be dead. Yeah, me too. I'm 80, man. I love it as much as I ever did. Yeah. 
that's great, man. I, you know, I've been, I've been playing anywhere near as long as you have, but I've been playing for many years and, and I'd still feel the same way. I'm like a, a kid at Christmas every time I get behind the drum kit. Yeah, me you too. Know? Well, you know, it's been a horrible year for me. The fact that I haven't been able to play. Yeah. I play, I play with really great players when I play in clubs and that, you know, and uh, concert things. But I think we sang last October, last October, the Montreal Drum Fest. In fact, there's a nice clip of me on YouTube of that Montreal Drum Fest. There's a clip, 15 minutes old. That's pretty good. So you were saying um, that this year you said it's been rough on you because you haven't been playing. Yeah, to play, I mean, I always get to play not a lot because there's not that many places to play anymore. Right. I play mostly in L.A. and, you know, uh, California. But the Montreal uh, Dr uh, Drum Fest was really great. I, mean, I was a featured drummer. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ralph D'Angelo, or Leo was his name. Uh, it was nice. Tommy Argo. Tommy you said there's a video on, uh, on YouTube with that. Yes, right? there is, yeah. Awesome. I'm gonna... Montreal Drum Fest, October of last year. And I'll link to that uh, on the website as well so all the people can check it out. Yeah, well, there is a link to it on the website. Okay. okay, I'll put it on the on the Drummers Resource website as well, so everybody can check that out. Okay. Also, la last year, uh, end of July into August, we went to Brazil. I, mean, I played down there, did some master classes, had a fantastic time, and I'm so popular down there, man, through bass drum control. All the drummers know me, know who I am. Yeah. That's good. Good. Every drummer should know who you are. Well, you can go into an American city, man. You don't find my book in, a, in, a, in a, either a drum shop or a music store. Um, Colin who? <laughs> That's but, but in Brazil, they all know me. This was, I think I should move there. <laughs> but that, that was a great experience. I, I thought I would bring that up. Uh, I love Brazilian music. Man. I, me too. But you can never get that feel, man. You've got to be born in Brazil to get that 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 that, 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 that feel, man. Mm -hmm. I've tried, you know, but I don't have enough time left now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's definitely a uh, you know a cultural thing and something that oh, you're, you're born Absolutely. with, you know. There's some, there's some incredible drummers down here. Have you ever seen Kiko Freitas? No. Oh man, he's on YouTube. You got to see this guy. He's an awesome drummer. Kiko Freitas? Yeah, F-R-E-I-T-A-S. K-I-K-O. He's got quite a few things on, on YouTube. I'm, a, I'm writing all this stuff down. I love, uh, I'm getting yeah. all this knowledge from you, and I'm just, I have a notepad next to me, and everything's getting by scribbled the, by down. By the way, I don't know if you've looked at my, uh, my wall on, on Facebook. I posted this solo of Buddy, 1967. He's still in a band from L.A. in those days, not the, the young kids <laughs> who he yelled at on the bus. But he played them. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny. That's oh, a, yeah, those well, he got these kids on the road for like 250 a week you know, right. in a hotel. So he got really dumb players and they were screwing up. So, you know, he wasn't used to that. But this solo, he plays the fastest single strokes I've ever heard. Of. It's just insane. I can't remember what the name of the solo is, but it's 1967. God. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. I, I knew Buddy fairly well for, for a period there, like 1968 time. I saw him quite a bit. And I'll tell you one of my uh, funny stories about him. 
I was playing with Benny Goodman's band. Have you ever heard of Benny Goodman? Absolutely. Uh, big band. We were going to Las Vegas. Uh, very end of December, New Year's, like into January, we went there for three weeks, three shows a night. So Buddy was playing with Harry James' band, the Flamingo, which was next to where we were playing. So we were rehearsing for two days, and uh, after the first day's rehearsal, we went out for, for dinner. So after that, we went across to hear Harry James' band, you know, me to hang out with Buddy, man, just to be around. It was a thrill for me, you know. Right, right, right. So Buddy said to me, he said, what time are you guys rehearsing the rise? I like to hear the band. I said, oh, 10 o'clock. He said, fuck, I wouldn't get up there that early to hear me play. Who <laughs> would have the balls to say that? <laughs> that's <laughs> funny, man. That's, I wouldn't that's... get up that early to hear me play. <laughs> Shit, man. I just, it went right into my brain, you know. I thought it was the most incredible. It's like Shakespeare to me, that was. Right. So you've heard me talk about the Black Panther Design Lab series from Mapex. Let me tell you a little bit about the Artist series. So they have a couple different options, and one of them is the Warbird. This 12 by 5.5 snare is designed by Chris Adler, and it's an optimized version of the original Black Panther model with a unique 12-inch diameter and 100% walnut shell that delivers a dark, biting, and powerful sound. These snare drums are amazing. You can check this one out and more by going to mapexdrums.com. Did you know Buddy well? I, I, I spent some time around him. Uh, in Vegas and in LA, right. various times, and uh, he was on a TV show. I was in the band on, and he played on my drums. Man, Jesus! Uh, I didn't want to dust him off or anything after that. <laughs> but was he was he nice or was he just a jerk? Well, he, no, he was great to me. He was yeah, really yeah. nice to me. And, you know, I told him, I said, "Buddy, I know you hear this all the time." But I said, "You just kill me, man." I said, "What an inspiration!" You know. He said, "Thank you, man." Thank you. So you know, a lot of people say uh, he. he, he Take it the wrong way. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but Dean was great, man. Well, that's good. That's that gives that gives me a little bit of uh of saving grace with him, you know. Yeah, well, he could be. He was on this TV show, man. Like, buddy used to stay up all night and get up at four o'clock in the afternoon. Right. This TV show, the rehearsal was ten ten o'clock in the morning. <laughs> he, he didn't want to be there, you know. Right. And he was a bit. Uh, it's salty. So they, they said to him, Buddy, you have any charts? Ah, fuck no, I just play the blues. Thanks <laughs> for Do you know um do you know a gentleman by the name of Dick Shorey? Yes, I do. Yeah, he he was with Ludwig when I was with Ludwig in the, in the 66, 67 time. Yeah, so I spent some time with him uh when I was in college. He came and uh and we did some of his some of his work. And uh, or some of his pieces. And so he was the guy that was responsible for Buddy Rich leaving Ludwig and going to Slingerland. Yeah. Yeah. Because they because he wanted him to pay him twenty five thousand dollars a year to play Ludwig. And he told him to stick it up his ass. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, sh- <laughs> I guess I guess Slingerland paid him, though. Oh, yeah. Well, people pay that much now. Man. So what kind of kit do you play? Do you play a DW? 
DW. I've been with DW since they started, man. Nick oh. Stroll I had their first two drum sets, 1980. Hmm. So what do you use, an 18, 18 or a 20? No, 20. I, 20. I don't like 18s. Because no. uh, if you look on, when, when I, on the DVD, you'll see uh, my bass drum beater is above the center of the drum. Mm-hmm. That's the deadest part of the drum, you know. Right. Why people don't use it on a timpani. Uh, not that you can compare a bass drum to a timpani. But, um, so it's, it's above there. So, uh, oh man, what are we saying? Jesus, mm-hmm. so much stuff going on. What are we talking about? The bass drum beater? The beater, yeah, I have, I have it like higher, you know. Uh, and um, we were saying, talking something about the bass drum pedal. Oh, I've lost it. Got <laughs> all the stuff that's on there. And- well, yeah, there's nothing on there, you know, it's just a plain old pedal. Right. And people are all interested in what pedal it is. It's just a... Just a regular old pedal. The old DW pedal. Oh, yeah, I was talking about the, the drums. Nick Sorley and I were the first two endorsees with Camco in 1963. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went with Ludwig in 66 because I was with George Shearing. We were on the road. And Bob Yeager at the Pro Drum Shop, who got me the right bass drum control, he, he used to, like, control my drum company thing. He said, now you go with Ludwig. So he told Ludwig, Colin Bailey's coming with you, send him two sets of traps. <laughs> nice. So they did. You know, he was that influential. And uh, then uh, everybody went with Pearl in 72, which I did. Mm-hmm. And I played with their drums till I went with Don in 79. And they made their first drums in 1980. They sent me a strange setup. Uh, 20 by 16 bass drum, 13 by 9 mounted drum, whatever you call them, they're tom-tom, <laughs> and a 14 by 14 floor tom. I mean, totally the oddest size drum. Right, right. <laughs> what sizes do you play now? You said you play a 20-inch bass. Well, yeah, I just play the regular old stuff, 8 by 12, 14 by 14, 20 by 14 bass drum. Mm-hmm. And I have, a, I have a really great snare drum. It's a 6.5-inch brass snare drum, which was made from by DW for me. And uh, I got I got a new set what, four or five years ago. I had a new drum with it, but I, I couldn't play on it. I had to get my old drum. <laughs> I've had it for years. I played on one of the NAM show, God, 15 years ago at least, uh, maybe more. And uh, I was in the Sabian booth, you know, and they had a DW set. And uh, man, I'm really ranting on, aren't I? No, we're talking gear. <laughs> so I played on this drum I think Jesus the stick seemed to fly off it you know so I've got to get one of those so Don you know got me one and I um, took it on the road I was on the road with Jesus okay. anyway the, the the airline smashed my uh, trap case and uh. ruined that drum so you know I got another one Oh. That, the first one was the best one, actually. It's always the case, isn't it? And then you get another yeah. one. I have a drum now that it sounded great for years and years and years, and now it just doesn't sound good anymore. I, I've, two, yeah. I've changed the heads. I've changed the hoops. I've changed you know, everything I could possibly. i changed the strainer on it. Everything, it just doesn't sound good anymore. So yeah. time to get rid of it. Yeah, get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. so, get yeah. another one. So yeah. and what do you, what symbols do you play? Do you play? Uh, I play. I went with Istanbul. Memet. Istanbul, yep. I love their symbols. I like dark, dark symbols, you mm-hmm. 
Yeah, me too. I like dark symbols. Uh, and they have dark symbols. I, I go to their warehouse every time I go down to LA and get some, some different symbols. They're a lovely company, you know. Mm-hmm. And Pam Gore is the, 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 the lady in charge in LA, and she's really sweet. And uh, so I'm very happy with those. Uh, I was saving for 25 years. Uh, and they were great to me. They really were. I, I always gave me if, if I asked for something. Right. Uh, but uh, I, I, at the NAM show two years ago, I went by their, you know, their booth, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. And I started playing these symbols. I was like, Jesus, this is just what I like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect. That's what you, you know, need. Mel Lewis symbols, you know. Right. Uh, you know who Mel Lewis was, right? What's that? Do you know who Mel Lewis was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, okay. So you're, you're a young guy with Mel. Mel was a big influence on me with big bands. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a young guy, but I listen to, most of the stuff that I listen to is from years ago, so. That's, that's great, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you'll find some albums with me that were made years ago. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do, uh, I already, I did a lot of research on you, but I'm going to do more, so, you know. Uh, I'm definitely going to check out some more records of yours. Yeah. So anyway, the, those symbols, I I use uh, 14 hi-hats, like a flat bottom with, a, with the holes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have so many different symbols. I keep changing them around. Like I've got a, a 21 right now, uh, Zier. So they have the weirdest names, you know. But I like it, you know. And then I have a 21, very dark ride. And I have a really great China symbol with rivets in this. The best one I've ever had. <laughs> Love it. And uh, that's that. But I have other symbols. You know, I have some 21 inch or 22 inch uh, right symbols. Mm-hmm. I have some other, t- a couple of 20 inch. So I, I have so much different symbols to choose from. Variety is the spice of life, my friend. It is. Yeah, I like to change it around a bit. Yep, yep me too. So, uh, well, good deal. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about you, they can just go to ColinBailey.com, right? Yeah. And all your information is on there, your yes. your books, your DVDs, all that stuff. They can access it through yeah. that. Yeah, there's clips of the DVD on my website, you know, and, and of, uh, uh, me playing. We did, when I did the um, uh, did the DVD, Donald Barty said he wanted me to do a trio, a couple of trio things, or a few trio things at the end of it, so... I was down there in LA once. It was probably two or three years after the uh, after I did the DVD, and um, well, I did the, the filming for it. Mm-hmm. It was before it was released, and uh, there were two great players at DW at the time playing with somebody else, a singer. They had some. They have so many visitors from all over the world. Oh, I know, I know. And they had like an entertainment thing. They had some chick singer, and there were these guys, John Chiodini on guitar who I'd never met before, a great guitar player. And, and Jim Hewitt, who I played with for years with Joe Pass and, and other people in L.A. We, you know, we're still great friends. Uh, and uh, so anyway, Don said, I want you to do some tunes after all this shit's over, you know, with a party thing. So we stayed and uh, we just, they didn't want any, any melodies because of the, you know, the, uh, the royalty thing. Mm-hmm. So we just, you know, did did a couple of blues things and changes on satin doll, and I did a thing with the hands, and you know, so we did it all like boom, 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 you know, like right off the cuff, and 
Yeah, and it turned out really well. You know, awesome. we did. but when you get good players together, man, you, you got to, unless they're really, really different styles. But you know, we were like beboppers, you know. Right. So it's easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're playing with good players, Jesus. Yep. Yeah, I got out to LA and played with various guys. A guitar player named John Pisano, who was with Joe Pass all those years, who mm-hmm. was playing. And he has a guitar that has been on for like 15 years or more. And I go down there and play that, you know, once in a while. Of course, nothing this past year, like I said, because I'm right. recovery. So you will be getting out to play again soon, though, right? Oh, yeah. A couple more months. I should be really ready. Good. That's when good to hear. Yeah, it is for me. So where are you? are not in L.A. Where are you at? I live just outside of San Francisco. Oh, okay. Okay. For some reason, I was thinking you were in the L.A. area. Just well, because. I was. I was there right. for many years. I got uh, it. I left there in 1979. I was um, offered this post at North Texas State University. And uh, Steve Houghton, the drummer, was doing all mm-hmm. the student work down there. He was coming to L.A., going to L.A. So this friend of mine, I didn't know for Christ knows how many years, he was one of the, the top arrangers down there. He did a lot of jingles and, you know, he said, why don't you move down here, man? You know, I got a lot, lot, lot of work. So I did, you know. And right. It was not bad for a couple of years and it started to get on my nerves. Mm-hmm. Y'all come back now here, all that shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have a nice day, yeah? Tell <laughs> me have a nice day. <laughs> So uh, that then, you know, I moved back. I met, I met some guys. I was a saxophone player named Richie Cole. I met through a bass player from Denver. He was coming down to play with me in, in his club in, in Dallas. And uh, I started going on the road with Richie Cole. And the, the piano player named Dick Heinemann was a great piano player. He lives in San Francisco. So uh, I came to, back to San Francisco and I left Texas. And uh, came here because I don't really, really want to go to LA anymore. I wish I had actually in hindsight. Yeah. But uh, this is a nice place to live. You know, where I live is really nice. Yeah. So I live outside. You know, outside in the sticks. <laughs> right. That's what I, I like. That I live in. I live in New York, but it's uh, you know, I like being. I like the country as well. So yeah, yeah. I used to love to go and play in New York, man. You have to be on your on your top of the, of the vanguard. You know. The fans that go in there, though. <laughs> oh, I know. They know what it's supposed to be like, you know. Right. And, uh, yeah, you're not pulling anything over anybody's eyes there. Yeah. I, I remember playing here with Richie Cole uh, in 1983. I remember the years and everything. You know? And uh, I've been talking about, I like to play a solo a ballad, you know. So he started playing uh, around midnight. Mm-hmm. So he played, and Dick Hyman played, and they all just sat back. You know, I was just, <laughs> <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> I'm at the Village Vanguard and I got to play a solo on, on. I did great, by the way, because I, uh, <laughs> I have good ideas. Uh, you have to have a decent technique to do that kind of stuff. Right. I was playing with brushes, obviously. Yeah, that was a trip. <laughs> I was like, I've been in New York in quite a few years, and in 1994 is the last time I was there. Well, anytime you're here, we'll, uh, we'll, I'll take you out to lunch. 
Okay. Absolutely. That's ideal. That is a deal. And for all the listeners out there, be sure to check out ColinBailey.com. I'll also list all of Colin's information on DrummersResource.com so everybody can get over to his website and pick up his books. I strongly recommend it. All of his YouTube links and all that stuff are going to be on the website as well. So check it out. And Colin, thank you very, very, very much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really do appreciate it. And it's been... I'm glad we could get together finally. (laughs) Me too. Me too. It was an absolute pleasure. Colin, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. There you have it, the legend, Mr. Colin Bailey. And you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 633. And there are links in there to all of his bass drum books and all of the things that we, we talk about in there as well. So definitely check that out and let this episode be a reminder that life is precious and that we should pick up the phone and call someone if you haven't talked to them in a while or, or maybe if you have some uh you're fighting with someone or or you're you know you haven't talked to them in a while maybe you should pick up the phone and maybe bury the hatchet or or just go out and and live life to the fullest because we never know when our number is called so i hope you enjoyed that episode i hope that you got a lot of nuggets and wisdom from it and i thank you for listening until the next podcast keep drumming and i'll be talking to you soon peace Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com. Revoice Media.